passage for today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we praise you for being a God of hope. Thank you for bringing each one of us here today. We pray that you comfort those that are unable to be with us today. And Lord, we pray that you will bend our stubborn hearts to your plan for our lives. We pray that we truly will find our hope in you and you alone. We pray for our broken world and our broken bodies. We pray that your light shines through despite our failings. And God, we pray that you will be with Pastor Jeff today and give him the words to say, Thank you for all that you do. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Teresa. How are you all today? Terrific. We're going to be in Romans 5 again. Actually, we're going to be in verses 12 through 21, but I wanted us to read verses 2 through 5 because we really didn't cover them last time, but they really do introduce kind of the theme of the next three or four chapters, actually. This passage tells us that we have a great hope in the world, but hope as opposed to what? Hope in answer to what? What is wrong with the world that we would need this hope? Depending on one's ideology or worldview, uh, people will have different answers for that question, but not all of the answers can be right. Would you agree? If you're a Marxist materialist, then your answer to that question is to critique the haves and have-nots. Evil, the Marxist says, stems from the existence of a free market and private property ownership. What's so evil about that? Well, they say that creates all kinds of inequities in our society. And that's a problem. That's evil. So their solution is a communal one. Equal poverty for all. And of course, history has already judged this worldview. It has already judged this approach. The verdict has come down. Their solution to their alleged problem as they see it has proven to be wrong. Every regime where personal property or freedom, the freedom to exchange goods in a free market or the absence of free speech and the freedom to vote, every regime that has tried to take these things away has been a failure on the stage of world history. So surely they're not right about the problem of evil. Likewise, materialist atheism answers this question, what's wrong with the world, by focusing on human progress and evolution. For the naturalist who only believes in a material world, they will protest two kinds of evil. The first one is anything that gets in the way of human flourishing, the project of human flourishing. But how do you define that on atheism? What is flourishing compared to what? What is progress to what? And then the second evil that's in our world is, of course, religion. Religion itself is considered for them 
to have done more harm than good. But of course, this worldview, to be fair, must admit that the mass delusion that we are all under, the vast majority of people on this planet, that there is some transcendent reality beyond us, they must at least admit, to be fair, that that belief confers some uh, benefit, some survival benefit on the people who believe it. And the protests against why there is evil and suffering in the world for the atheists cannot even be answered because on their worldview, they cannot even objectively define what evil is. They don't even have the language, they don't have the semantics, they don't have the intellectual resources to even define what objective evil is because on their view, there is no objective evil. So surely the materialist, atheist view of the world cannot be right. What about Eastern religious views? such as the Baha'i or Buddhism, to name a few, uh, just two out of many. They see the issue of sin as evil. Now, they do hold a view of sin. I was surprised as I, I read this this last week to be reminded that their view of sin is uh, really sort of breaking faith with laws of karma. This idea that sin is extrinsic, sin is external to you, it's out there somewhere. There's this external force, this impersonal force or law that you're breaking. And so, for the Baha'i or those kinds of religions, the secret is to find the divine from within because essentially you are good. The problem with the world is not that you are evil. The problem with the world is that you just, as a good, innately good person, do evil things. And so, you have the yin and the yang. The good and the evil must exist. They must coexist together, or one cannot exist without the other. And of course, the Judeo-Christian faith would deny that worldview. And we would also say it really doesn't square with the world as we find it. But the Judeo-Christian faith is really the only belief system with a robust hamartiology. The word hamartiology just refers to the doctrine of sin, That is the doctrine of universal sin going back to the first human beings. And this sin is the fundamental problem that all people face. Famous theologian Charles Hodge once wrote, this great question comes under the consideration of uh, of the Christian theologian with certain limitations. He assumes the existence of a personal God of infinite perfection, one. And then, two, he assumes the responsibility of every man. No theory of the nature of or origin of sin, which conflicts with either of these fundamental principles, can be true for the Christian. We believe there is a holy God who dwells in infinite perfection, and that He has issued us a moral law, and that we are culpable, we are liable for the laws that we break. And the fundamental problem with sin is that God's good world has fallen into disrepair. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is going to tell us some very interesting things. He's going to tell us that both Adam and Christ committed actions that have had lasting consequences, lasting but contrasting consequences on the entire human race. Paul began this chapter, as we just read, to tell us that we have this enduring hope, this enduring hope that cannot be defeated or tarnished by the trials or suffering or affliction or the tribulation that we experience. Quite the opposite, actually. Not only do they not tarnish our faith, they burnish it. They strengthen our faith and deepen it. In the next chapter, chapter 6, we're going to see that this hope and this grace triumphs over the power of sin. 
In the following chapter, we're going to see that this hope, this grace that reigns triumphs over the powerlessness of the law. And then in chapter 8, verses 18 through 39, we're going to see He gives us an assurance of our hope. This hope is assured because we are the foreknown elect of God. So today, the first thing I want to tell you, it's right here on your bulletin. You can fill in the blanks if you want to follow along. The legacy of Adam was sin and death. The first thing that Paul wants to tell us, one, is that the legacy of Adam was sin and death. Verses 12 through 14 is another summary case of 118 through 320. Once again, he's summarizing his case. Notice how many times in the first five chapters that he summarized this, that he circled back to it. To say, don't forget, everyone is unrighteous. No one is righteous. There is not even one person who is righteous. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now he's going to tell us exactly why that is, kind of how that is. Verses 12 through 14 It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, that is the giving of the Mosaic law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression, he is a type of the coming one. Now, those two verses... There is so much packed down. There's a whole sermon series in those two verses. I assure you, there are many issues to cover. We cannot cover them all. I promise you, if you have questions about some stuff that's in this verse, and I don't cover it today, uh, we're going to talk about it again. Or if you want to ask me later, that's fine. But look in verse 12a, the first part of 12 there. He says, sin entered the world through Adam and death through sin. So sin came through Adam and death came through sin. Adam and Eve were warned to avoid the tree, (laughs) the infamous tree. Now, they already had the knowledge of good, didn't they? They had God's good command to them, and they also had this good world that they were to partake in freely. So, they already had knowledge of God's good decree, His good command. They knew goodness, but they didn't know evil. That means they didn't personally know what it was like to lust or crave or be frightened or any of those things that come along with the package of being a sinner. So, God says that tree there is off limits. And of course, we know the rest of the story. They fail. They eat of the tree. They transgress the decree, the command. And what happens? The judgment of death comes. Right after that, God gives them the condemnation that He warned them about of death. And so, sin entered through Adam and Eve, and death, the condemnation, the penalty for sin came through that. Then He says, death spread to all because all sinned. Now, He doesn't say that death, death spread to all because Adam sinned. He says, death spread to all because all sinned. But clearly, a a few verses later, we're going to see that he does strongly infer that death spread to all because Adam sinned too. It's it's both. Now, this passage here, the second part of the verse, historically, has been um, dealt with by by various church historians, by by various pastors of history. And it's been translated variously, it's been interpreted variously, all the way back to Pelagius. Uh, Church father Pelagius took the meeting, uh, took this to say that what Paul was saying is here is that Adam sinned and was condemned for his sin, but that didn't transfer to us in any way. 
you and I are just imitating Adam. So innately, you're a clean slate, Pelagius wanted to say. You could act good or you could choose to act in an evil way. Well, Augustine countered this by saying, no, 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 the clear thrust of the passage is that in some way, some form or fashion, Adam's sin damned the rest of us too. That's why we all sinned. Uh, and so he wanted to tie it to our biology. We're all born out of Adam, out of the person of Adam. Our, that's where all of our bodies come from. So surely it's something deep embedded in our flesh. And then John Calvin came along and actually brought further correction to that. And he introduced, this un, he introduced this unstated element to the text, the idea of the sinful nature. We often talk about the sinful nature. That's because John Calvin first taught that. And there's this idea, it's not stated in the text, but it seems strongly inferred, Calvin said, that between Adam and his progeny, his children, he transferred something of a spiritual nature to us that is bent inwardly towards sinning. And I, I think that Calvin is right about that interpretation. Theologians today have kind of swung back to the idea of what's called federal headship. You can write that phrase down, federal headship. You'll want to read all about that later, <laughs> won't you? The idea of federal headship, and that is to say that Adam is our legal representative before God. And so God is not just condemning Adam for his sin, but God is condemning Adam as the representative of the human race. And so the condemnation, the just sentence that God delivers to him is representatively to him and the rest of the human race. Now, in Christ, representatively, we are made righteous because Christ is the righteousness of God. He obeyed. And so Christ is our new federal head. And I think between Calvin and Douglas Moo and some of the modern theologians that focus on federal headship, I think they're right. That's clearly what this passage is getting at. Something like that. And then in verse 13, we learn that God's moral law was written on the heart before given in the Torah or the tablets. God's moral law was written on the heart before given in the Torah or the tablets. He makes this very curious statement that almost seems contradictory. He says, in fact, sin was in the world before the giving of the Torah law. But sin is not charged to a person's account where there is no law. But God did charge sin to the account of the people between Adam and Moses, didn't he? Genesis chapter 6, we go back to the flood account. And what does that account say about how God assessed people's sins? It says that God looked and saw that every inclination of the heart, that's the sinful nature, was bent toward doing evil, and God judged them for it. So God is able to judge a person for uh, laws they know about, such as the Torah and the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and also laws that have been stamped on the heart, that have been etched in the soul. And then in verse 14, he says, Now death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now we have already said in a, a few messages ago that there are three aspects to Jewish death. The first is spiritual, this idea that we die spiritually. And this means that your spiritual person, you're a soul, you're an immaterial self who inhabits a body, who lives and functions through a material body. And so there's something, there's a faculty, there's a capacity that the soul has that has now been darkened and deadened in sin. 
That's Romans 1. The mind has become increasingly darkened through idolatry and sin. So that's a kind of loss of spiritual function, loss of spiritual capacity, so spiritual death. But then there's also social death. Remember what God did with Adam and Eve right away. What He did was to bar them from the garden, to expel them from the garden of His paradise where His presence is manifest and dwells. And so that's the idea of exile, social death from the family. That is very prevalent in Jewish thought right up to the New Testament. And then thirdly, of course, there is the permanent, unending physical cessation of physical life. The permanent, unending cessation of physical life. Now, unless and until there is an intervening principle... Death reigns in the human experience. Death is the order of the day. Men die and they always will. Men die and they stay dead and they're not coming back. In any case, Paul wants to tell us that Adam is the wellspring of this. He's the fountainhead, right? He is the one from whom his legacy is sin and death, and yet he's a type of the coming one, the one who was to come to unwind the curse. Number two, the legacy of Christ is grace and life. Praise the Lord. (laughs) The legacy of Christ is grace and life. Paul now contrasts Adam's legacy with Christ's. And in that sense, Jesus is rightly said to be the second Adam, the new humanity. Listen, if you have been born again and you have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of the new order. You are God's new creation. New creation has started in you, in your soul, in your person. Because you are part of the new humanity, because you're born into the second Adam. Romans 5, 15 through 16, look at this text. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more? The grace of God and the gift which comes through grace uh, of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin. Because from one sin came judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. So Paul tells us that the gift is not like the trespass. How is it different? How is it contrasted? Well, it's contrasted on several grounds. The source of it, Adam versus Christ. The scope of it, I'm going to explain that in a second. And their effects and outcomes. So they're contrasted on just basically every way. The source, the scope of the gift or the trespass, and its effect and outcome in the human race. Let me explain what I mean. This is what I mean. The grace of Christ overflows to all who are born again. The grace of Christ overflows to all who are born again. This seems like a duh moment, right? Some of you are like, duh, do we need a preacher this morning to tell us this? I would, here's why I bring that up. Because this is the very passage. This passage in Romans 3 are the very passages that universalists come to to try to say that there's going to be universal salvation for all. All dogs go to heaven and their owners, right? But that's wrong. That is actually not what Paul is saying. It might be very tempting actually to read this passage and think the gift is like the trespass. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say the gift is like the trespass. Two times in verse 14 and verse 16, he says the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is not like the trespass. Paul doesn't say that the gift is like it. He says it's not like it. 
Through the sin of Adam, the many, that is all who are born into Adam, died because they sinned, because they inherited a sinful nature, and Adam as their federal head, their representative, was condemned. They are condemned. And through the new birth in Christ, all who are in Christ by the new birth have been saved. Being born again is critical. Being justified by faith is critical. It's a condition of this passage, actually. Now, we have already mentioned Romans 5, 1 and 2, where he said, we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we have also obtained access to Him through faith. John 20, 31, we mentioned a few weeks ago. John said, this is the reason I'm writing this book. This is the reason I wrote these signs. These signs were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life in His name, right? So you have to believe to have life. John 3.3, 3, I'll put this one up. You can see it. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He will not see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus, in order to enter the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 1.3 says, because of his great mercy, he has given us the new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope, this living hope that the believer has comes through the new birth in Christ. Titus 3.5, he said, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The grace is not like the trespass. It doesn't automatically transfer to everyone. We are justified by faith, and the person who has justifying faith in Jesus is born again by the Holy Spirit into the second Adam, the new man. There are only two races. This is why racism is abhorrent from a New Testament perspective. This is why racism is absolutely inappropriate for any Christian, because there are only two. There's the race of Adam and the race of Jesus, and that's it. Unless one thinks I'm importing a context that is foreign to Paul here, look at verse 17, chapter 5, Romans 5, 17. Look at what he says. If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul says right here, you have to receive it. John 1.12, to those who received Christ, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. In the case of the United States versus Wilson, Wilson! All right. I just can't read that without thinking of that movie. Um, <laughs> Defendant George Wilson was convicted of robbing the U.S. mail. And on his way out with, the, with whatever he was, what do you rob at the U.S. mail? Do you rob like mail? What do you take? But on his way out with the bags of whatever, he threatened one of the postal carriers. And so he was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. This is 1883. He had a very influential friend who knew Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, personally. And the friend went to President Jackson and said, President Jackson, this is an injustice. The, the, the punishment does not fit the crime. And Andrew Jackson agreed. And he decided to issue the man a pardon. 
And on this condition, that this pardon applies to this crime and no others, that made George Wilson really mad. He wanted a blanket pardon for anything he did in the future. And so he refused, this is true, he refused the presidential pardon. Now, nobody knew what to do about this because nobody had refused a presidential pardon before. What do you do with the guy who refuses to accept pardon? And so it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court looked at the case, and here's the ruling. I'll put it up. This is their ruling. It says, a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. And so in the case of Romans 5, what is going on here is Paul is saying, is contrasting Adam and Jesus. He's saying, in Adam, all sinned, all died, but in Jesus, all have been issued a pardon, and all must receive it. All must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and God the Son, in order to be released. And so, the gift is not like the trespass. It applies to those who believe. It applies to those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, whose hearts and minds and thoughts have been unlocked and released from the prison of sin. Next, the born-again believer now experiences the reign of grace resulting in life. And so, this grace is not just something that we sort of get our uh, tickets punched, right? Get our fire insurance. No, it's a reign. It's the reign of God's kingdom in the life of the believer. Romans 5, 20 through 21, he says, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in place of spiritual, social, and physical death, the permanency of death, the born-again believer who has justifying faith now has life forevermore. They have the promise of life when they die. They have the promise of new creation when God's new creation is fully realized, when it fully comes at the end of the world. And they have the promise of resurrected bodies that will never die again. But they don't just have those future promises. They have the promise of life now. That life is coursing through us. It is coursing through our spiritual uh, veins, and what it is doing is it, it is replacing the patterns, the death that we've experienced in sin, and we experience the transforming power of this new life coursing through us. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who is a radio pioneer and the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, once told a story about visiting the battlefields of Belgium after the armistice of World War I. He described a scene where the Germans had hastily abandoned all of their artillery and tanks and trucks and all the, all the war machines, and many were just blown up and left in ruins, and it just looked like a battle-scarred field. And he described the scenes where the Germans had hastily abandoned their artillery and their German war machines, and he noticed that the leaves, as he walked around looking at all of it, he noticed that there were leaves that were falling from the great trees that arched above the road uh, that were from the fall. He brushed one of the leaves off of his chest, and it immediately it just disintegrated. And they just began to continue to fall upon him. More leaves began to fall around him, and curiously he noted 
It was not fall, it was spring. Why are these leaves falling off the trees? There is, he noted, that there was no breeze in the air to push them off. These were the leaves that had outlived the winds of autumn and the deep frosts of winter. And he writes, and now they were falling seemingly without cause. Then I realized that the most potent force of all was causing them to fall. It was spring. The sap was beginning to run. Coursing through these branches, the buds were beginning to push up from within, from down beneath the dark and scorched earth, from beneath the wreckage of war and the blood-soaked ground, the roots of the trees were drawing upon an unseen source of life, sending that life upward through the trunk, through the branches, through the twigs, expelling every bit of deadness that remained from the previous year. It was to quote a famous Scottish preacher, the expulsive power of new affections. And in the same way, what is happening to the believer is that they have this promise of life, they have this promise of new life when they die, they have this promise of resurrection and new creation, but right now, the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, and the life of God is coursing through our spiritual veins. And outwardly, we still may be scarred by death. We've inherited from Adam surrounded by the wreckage of sin in a culture that is in constant states of war. But inwardly, the Christian is being renewed day by day. Inwardly, the Christian draws upon a life that is unseen, God the Holy Spirit, having received the pardon from sin's penalty and new life in place of the death that was part of Adam's legacy. Let me ask you, do you have that life today? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to prepare to take communion this morning. You bow your head, close your eyes, and let's focus on Christ this morning. Let me ask you, is there evidence that the life of the Holy Spirit is replacing the death, the death that was the legacy of Adam in your life? This morning, I want to prepare you for communion. Jesus said this in, in Luke 22. Luke wrote this. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to commemorate me. This symbol, the symbolic meal that we partake of this morning is a symbol of death. It's a symbol of someone's grisly, horrific death. And it is through his blood and his body that you and I have life. Do you have this life this morning? I want to encourage you. If you're not a believer, don't take of this meal. But if you are a believer, reflect on the life of Christ, the reign of grace, which results in your life this morning. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are to eat and drink worthily. Meaning that we take this moment to examine our hearts. Let me ask you. Is there any way in which you are dividing the body of Christ? God, is there any way that I am dividing the body of Christ through factionalism, through gossip, 
we confess it right now. God, we confess our sin. We confess that we have divided your body. And God, we ask you to cleanse us and forgive us of all of our sins, to wash us clean. And as we partake of this meal that commemorates your son's death, we are reminded of the reign of grace, the reign of life in place of it. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Thank you.